Okay, good work. Yeah, Shukayach, everyone, for coming. Okay, this year is Bezaz Hashem, um, a compilation of many of the, or I say a, s- a small amount of the many divrei Torah that Rav Chaim left over for us as a treasure. Rav Chaim's first Yerzai is upcoming on this Shushan Purim. There is not one Miktsaya of Torah that Rav Chaim did not write on. I'm, I'm not sure, I don't have a proper survey, but I don't know of any other Gadol in our time that wrote in every single Miktsaya HaTorah of Tanakh, Bavli, Yushalmi, Midrashim, Halacha, Musr, any sugi you're learning, Rav Chaim wrote on. And um, I think over the next dec- few decades, we'll have continued swarm coming out from things his own pen and Talmidim. People will ask him questions, and there'll be compilations and compilations upon compilations. And what I did tonight, for the most part, is I gathered many different Torah that he has in his main sefer on Tanakh, which is called Taima Dekra. Um, again, there's an endless amount of Torah. I'm just going to select some of the few that um, intrigued me the most. And I'll share them with you. Each tidbit is a separate standalone vart. So if you miss on one vart, just pick up by the next one. And we'll try to get through as many of them as we can. So um, again, like I said, the, most, the bulk of the, of the uh, shtiklach will come from the Sefer Taim Dekra, But some of them will come from others. And the first one is from a Kuntras Divrei Siach. It's from a Talmud of Reb Chaim. This is in Bnei Brak of Goldstuff. And he has he collected many stuff from Reb Chaim, but uh, he says that he, Reb Chaim told him the reason why he has in time of the crow, which is, again is a safe on most of Tanakh, why does he have a, a tremendous amount of Megillah Sester? It's, it's more than the rest. So Reb Chaim told him a very simple reason because Allah is on Purim, you can only write according to some Paiskim, Chedushay Torah Neget to the Megillah. But according to many, that's all you could write about. So therefore, on Purim, he was stuck. He wanted to write Chidushay Torah. So he was forced to focus only on Megillah Esther. So in Mela, he had a lot of Chidushay on Megillah Esther. And he said year after year, he kept writing more and more. And one of his sons one year wanted to say, okay, I'm going to put out a safe and all this shtickle just on Megillah Esther. And he said, no, don't do it because I'm going to have so much more next year. So, you know, unfortunately now we're at a situation where we don't have the new Chidushim. So I'm sure... Like I said, Swarm will come out, but this is just a Hakdama. So here we go. The first shtickle, which is number two on the sheets from Time of the Kra, on Megillah Sester, Reb Chaim makes it a very interesting observation. Now we'll see, there's a common denominator that's going to happen in many of these shtickle, is that Reb Chaim, to explain any shayla he had, takes you on a tour through Chazal, and shows you throughout Chazal how this is going to be answered in from, from left field, so to speak. It's coming from a place where you wouldn't necessarily think about where the answer would come from. But he says, he makes an observation. First of all, he says, how is Ahasuerus' name spelled? So for the most part in the Megillah, it's spelled Mole. Aleph, Ches, Shin, Vav, Achash, Aleph, Ches, Shin, Vav, Resh, Vav, Shin. That would be Mole. That's how it's spelled most of the time. There are four times in the Megillah that it's spelled Chaser. And one time, meaning it's lacking a Vav, and one time it's spelled chaser the chaser lacking both vavs, spelled only with only aleph ches shin reish shin. What is the significance? What does that uh, connote to us? The fact that there's different spellings in Achashverosh's name. So he says, well, first of all, you know, as many times I heard Megillah Sester and I thought I was paying attention. Of course, I didn't necessarily pick up on it. Um, so that's the first thing. You gotta, you gotta be uh, observant to realize this this uh, diak. So he says there are, there are four places are going to symbolize the ideas as follows. We know that Chazal tell us that there's a conflicting Mamari um, Chazal. Was Achashverosh a powerful, mighty, you know, good, good king? Or was he a Melech Tibish? Was he a foolish king? So says um, Chaim that when his name is spelled Mole, that connotes he was a, a king in his full capacity. He, he had a full, good power of, over his constituents. When he was 
wishy-washy a little bit, wasn't ruling with a full hand, with a full fist, he's chaser a little bit. When he was completely out of line, he's chaser the chaser. And he goes through each one to show how this fits in. He says, so just where I underline some of it, he says, Aleph, the first time we see where it's chaser is where the Bikson and Sheresh wanted to kill Achashverosh. Bikshul Shlachat Bemelach Achashverosh. Achashverosh is spelled chaser. The second time, when Haman sends out the letters in the name of the king of Achashverosh, again, by the Beis, Be'igres Haman, Be'shem HaMelech, Achashverosh is spelled chaser. The third time, which is um, um, when Achashverosh uh, gives the um, right for Mordechai and Esther to rewrite the letters, send out letters, again, it's written chaser. And lastly, in the same, those two psukim later, again, when they write those letters in the name of Achashverosh, again, it's spelled chaser. So he explains, again, like we spoke out, that Achashverosh connotes a, a lotion of Rosh. Now, he says, how do I know that when something's mole, it shows more power, and something's chaser, it shows less power? It's a nice idea, but Rav Chaim's not just saying it off the cuff. He says, because often a Gemara in Yuma, the Gemara in Yuma darshins about Tiroish. Sometimes, what does Tiroish mean? Wine. Sometimes it's spelled chaser in the Torah, sometimes it's spelled mole in the Torah. So the Gemara, whatever it's talking about, there, nothing to do with Achashverish, but the Gemara makes a rule that when Tiroish is spelled whole, when it's spelled mole, zacha naser, someone who drinks a good amount of wine, meaning a small in small measure, so he's control of his of his alcohol. He'll be a rice. He could be a head because he's someone who's in control. Someone who doesn't have control of his alcohol, it's spelled chaser. So loy zacha naser rash. He becomes like impoverished. He becomes poor. So Vlamdeinu says, Reb Chaim, you learn from here that mole means a rice. He's you're a good head. You're fit to be a leader. And when you're chaser. A letter, it means you're not fit to be a good leader. So, Vachasar Kavanarash, you're in Pavish. It says that means anytime the kingship of Achashverish was displayed properly, it spelled Male. But when Bixen and Teresh wanted to kill him, they were trying to overthrow his kingship. That shows a deficiency in his ability to rule. Okay, they were caught, but it shows that there was a problem there, so it spelled Chasar. Haman pulled a fast one over Achashverish, right? He goes to Haman goes to Achashverish and convinces him to wipe out the Yidin, but he doesn't tell him exactly who he's talking about. When he writes the letters, right, he puts in more detail. If you look carefully in the Psukim, Haman adds more detail than he told Achashverish because he was able to trick Achashverish. Again, that shows a deficiency in Achashverish's uh, uh, rulership because the constituents, Haman in this case, is his, uh, someone from his government, was able to pull a fast one over him. And then when Mordechai and Esther have to rewrite the letters, again, it shows a deficiency because Achashverish didn't know what to do. How can he go back on his previous decree? He, so he makes it has a whole scheme how to get um, you know, Mordechai and Esther to write a letter that's not really contradicting the first letter. So again, it shows he didn't have good shlita, good control over his, over his uh, kingship, over his, uh, his uh, countries, and therefore it's spelled chaser. Where is the only place Achashverosh is spelled chaser de chaser, lacking both vavs? That's all the way at the end of the Megillah. But Saifa Megillah says, Vayasam HaMelech Achashverosh, Mas. Achashverosh is uh, places a tax on the people. Nichtav chaser de chaser. Because the Gemara says, says Reb Chaim, that everyone became poor at the end of the Purim story because they had to pay all this high tax. If a king makes his whole country impoverished, says Reb Chaim, that's a great degradation to, uh, of, of his lack of leadership. The only way he can get money is by basically robbing it from all the people. That doesn't show that he's a good ruler. And that's, again, why every time the way, you, now we have a key to look. When Nachashverosh's name is spelled in the Megillah, if it's spelled Mole, it's showing his, his, his proper rulership. Chaser, it's uh, something, something deficient. And when it's Chaser, the Chaser shows that he really uh, lost control over the people. <laughs> that's definitely, that's chaser, the chaser, the chaser. Okay. <laughs> that's vart number one of Reb Chaim. Vart number two of Reb Chaim. Here comes another ingenious vart. 
So we all know that Mordechai was warning the Yidin not to go to Achashverosh's party, right? And we know that unfortunately many Yidin went to the party. Now, how many Yidin went? You ask the pe- common person on the street, I don't know, 10 people went, 100 people went, 1,000 people went. How many people went? How many people didn't go? So the Medrash says 18,500 people went to the party. Okay. First of all, how did the Medrash know that? So if you would have asked me how the Medrash know that, I would have just said, well, they had a Messiah. Chazal had a Messiah. And that's probably the answer. But Rabbi Chaim is going to show us how, even though they had a Messiah, it fits in with Chazal's panoramic view of understanding everything of why it must have been that number. And here we go for the roller coaster ride. He says, And it's number three on the right column. Where it's underlined, says, this seems like words of prophecy. How did Chazal know that specifically 18,500 people went to the party? He says, of course, the Cheshvan is very meduyak. Because he says, the party at the end, when all the, the part that the Yidden went to, was something that was miyuchet for the Jews. It was, it was special for the Jews. It wasn't for everybody else. And if you read the Psukim there carefully, it says, It was in the courtyard of the king. Now, how big is a courtyard? You'll tell, well, it depends on how big the estate is, right? Chaim says, no, it's often a Gemara and Yuma. If you look at the Gemara and Yuma discussing Chizkiyoah, Melech's palace, the Gemara there discusses how, and from there it's learning how the size of a Karfeif is, which is a whole sugi, an Erevin, we're not getting there, but it's a question of how large a certain area is. There, the Gemara says, Chatzei the courtyard of a king, is something which is Machzik base core. It holds an area which is called base core. Okay, however big that is, and Chaim says, that's Lamitza. Okay, so we see from a Gemara in Erevin discussing how big a Karfif is, which brings a Raya from Chizkiyahu Melech's palace, where it says the word Chatzar, that connotes to us that a Chatzar equals the size of Lametzah. Now, a Beisah, I've got to follow for some basic math here. A Beisah is going to be 50 by 50, which a squared Amis is going to be Beis Allah for 2,500 Amis. So a base core, he says, comes out, bottom line, at 75,000 amas. Okay, so the bottom line, he figures out from this whole chazal, is that the chatzar of the palace is 75,000 amas. Okay? Square, square amas, yeah, correct. 75,000 square amas. How many people fit in the 75,000 square amas? Well, we know from the Gemara in Sukkah that a person takes up one ama space. Now, for a person takes up one square ama, that's if you're sitting like sardines. Right? But if you're coming to a royal party, says Rav Chaim, it's safe to assume that everyone had space. So what's double that? That would be two square amas per person. So if you have 75,000 square amas, and every person by the royal feast gets an area of two square amas, so he says that would come out, there would be enough room for 18,750 people. Okay? So now we said, though, there were 18,500 people. So that means 250 people didn't come to the party. Now, What's the significance of that? He says, because look at the end of the Megillah, we know what happened when Shushan had the extra day to kill out the people in Shushan. How many people were killed? 500 people were killed, which were our 500 Amalekim were killed. Who killed the 500 Amalekim? Okay, the Yidin. How many Yidin does it take to kill 500 Amalekim? Well, if you're Superman, maybe one. But we're in Shushan. How many Yidin does it take to kill 500 Amalekim? It says from Chaim, it's a Pasha Lecheshvin. The mitzvah is mochay emche ezeich You have to wipe out, eradicate amolek. What when we say mochay emche ezeich amolek? What does that mean? Says Reb Chaim. You see from the Yushalmi in Saita that mechikas megillah Saita. When you erase a megillah Saita, a mechika has to be at least two letters. So he says, if you see the word mochay means two, that means in order to fulfill the mitzvah mechias amolek, you need to have two amolekim to kill. 
That's what he suggests. So two, it would take 250 people if everyone wants to get the mitzvah. Now, these 250, he says, it would make sense that they were the people who didn't go to the party. Because if they went to the party, you were the whole cause of the, the whole problem to begin with. So if you want to get the schus of getting the mitzvah, says Reb Chaim, so 500 Amalekim were killed by 250 Yidin. That means how many Yidin went to the party? 18,500. 18, Works very good. Okay, so that's how you have simple mathematics. How the Chazal, again, how the Chazal knows 18,500? Had a Messiah. But how does it fit in when you have the whole, when you have the whole Turkul, Turkul in front of you, says Rav Chaim, it makes a lot of sense. You know the size of the Chatzar, you know the size of the Chatzar, which had enough room, Achshvesh didn't know how many people are coming. He had to make, make enough room for all the Yidden that were possibly to come, which was 18,750. Only 18,500 came. So the 250 left were the ones able to kill the Amalekim. Okay, moving right along. I don't. Maybe he did. I don't. I don't have. Sorry. Like, but the, the food for, could, would probably take up like three square. Right. Hours I also think, right. A lot of food. That's right. Exactly. Okay. Number three or number four. The next page. So that, that's what was taking up the two hundred and fifty. That could, that could be also take space. That's true. So here, there's gonna have a vart, and you'll see why. I'm, as many of you know, I'm learning hilchas gitten now, and this vart. There's many tie-ins to hilchas gitten and purim, but this one was a new one to me, and it was from from Chaim. So I want to share with you. But before I share with you. I was recently reading the um, art scroll biography of Rav Dovah Feinstein, that's all. Fascinating, very uh, beautiful biography, a lot of amazing stories. And there was a story there that's going to fit into this Vart as well. And the story went as follows. Rav Dovah Feinstein was known not to be a big schmoozer. He was a relatively, he had a quiet personality, except when you were talking and learning, you know, he had what to say. But in general, he wasn't a schmoozer type. And often in the morning, one of his grandchildren, especially later in his life, would pick, the, pick him up and they'll walk together to the Shiva for Shachris. So one year, Purim morning, one of the grandchildren picks him up, and they're walking together to Yeshiva MTJ for Shachos and Purim morning. And usually it's a very quiet walk. They walk quietly, they cross the street, and they get to Yeshiva, whatever it is. This morning, uncharacteristically, Rav David tells his grandson, if you notice in the Megillah, you'll see Harvona's name is spelled two different ways. In Perak Aleph, when the seven officers of the king are called to go fetch Vashti, one of them is Charvona, it's spelled with an Aleph. And you'll see at the end of the Megillah, Perak Zion, when, um, after, when Haman's downfall and he's going to get hung, right? So Charvona points out that the gals are there, and there Charvona is spelled with a hay at the end. So David just told his grandson, this is why you'll see Charvona is spelled differently. He didn't elaborate too much. And his grandson thought, okay, it's interesting. It's nice our grandfather told me, but you know, okay. That his grandson said it was a Moifis, it was a Hasidish Moifis, because he was using a Megillah, and the Megillah he had had Harvona spelled both times with a hey at the end. And he said he would have never have picked up on it if not for the fact his grandfather had just told him that Vart. And then, of course, after he tells his grandfather, like this crazy Moifis, of course, David wasn't a spoil, and he just wanted to know if the Megillah is kosher. And I told him the Megillah is still kosher because well, then it doesn't pass the Megillah. Okay? That's odd kind of story with David Feinstein the Moifis. Now, if you look in time of the crow, Chaim explains why is it that in the beginning in Perak Aleph, Charvoyna is spelled with an Aleph, and in Perak Zion, Charvoyna is spelled with a He. Now, you also you have to realize, like we said before about the Achash Vart, you have to be paying attention from the beginning of Megillah to the end of Megillah that the same name appeared in a different letter. Okay, you have to be attentive enough to realize that. Okay, but that's the question why Charvoyna's name changes. Says Reb Chaim, Zatzal, it's because it's often a halach and Hilchas Gitin. The halacha is in Hilchas Gitin, we know when a person has to write a get, one of the most detailed parts of the get is getting the spellings of the names right. Exactly the way it's spelled, and, and if it's a Hebrew name, so it's spelled one way, Yiddish name, other secular names, it's very complicated sometimes how to spell the names. The general rule is any secular or any non uh, 
biblical Hebrew, you know, Hebrew name would end with an Aleph. So for example, you have a Yiddish name, Fega. So the woman's name is Fega or Blima or Ita. All those names would end with an Aleph because a, a non-Hebrew name ends with an Aleph. A Hebrew name ends with a Hey. For example, Sarah, Rivka, etc. All those types of names, a Shifra ends with a Hey at the end. Okay? So says Reb Chaim, in the beginning of the Megillah, Chavoyinu was spelled with an Aleph at the end. Why? He says, because if you look in the Targum, and then he tells you in parentheses here, by the way, a Targum has a mistake in it, because it has a riot from a Medrash, Targum has a mistake. I looked it up. Our Targum has a mistake also. It says that the reason why Charvoina in the beginning was called with an Aleph because he was, it represents Achreve, that he's going to bring destruction. Meaning, I don't know if that was why he was called that or that's symbolic in his name that he was part of a group that's going to bring some type of downfall. If you look in our Targum on the Charvoina, it says he was called Charvoina because it was Acher Bey. But Abchayim says it's a mistake. It should be Achrevek. Based on a Medrash, that's where Chavayinu was like the Mamuna, one who was like appointed to bring about uh, defeat or bring downfall. So in the beginning, he had a Persian name, and that's what ended with an Aleph because he was in charge of bringing Vashti down. At the end, he's going to be charged with bringing down Haman because again, Chavayinu's whole tafkid is to bring things down. So now he's going to bring down Haman. And Haman is going to be the, you know, bringing down Haman, bringing down Amalek is a tafkid to help Klal Yisrael Directly, of course, Vashti also is helping Klai Yisrael, but it's less direct. Helping, uh, bringing down Haman, he says, is direct help to Klai Yisrael. And that's why we say, Now will be because now he has a hey at the end of his name. So Charvoina is upgraded, says Rukhaim. Beginning in the Megillah, he's like a Persian guy. At the end of the Megillah, he's upgraded. We give him a hey at the end of the name that shows the Hashivas that we're giving him, like we're giving him this like extra bonus of having now a, a Hebrew name that now he gets a hey at the end of his name. For those uh, Kabbalists among us, you'll uh, keep this in mind when you uh, think about this Apostle by Yosef. Yosef says, He gives forth to his brothers, here is the, the, uh, the food for you, the sustenance for you. The Kabbalists say, At the end of a name is a skula for uh, children. If someone has a, a hard time having children, some Kabbalists will add the name, it has a hey at the end, and uh, for the Kabbalists you can look for there further. Okay, let's move on. Now we're going to take uh, a vart from Chaim, number five, on page number two. I took it from a country called Siach HaMagila, which is again written by a Talmud of Reb Chaim, but really this, this piece comes from a Sefer Reb Chaim wrote called Pashegen Haksav. One of the uh, numerous interesting svarim that Reb Chaim wrote was a whole Sefer on Hilchus of Tattoo. Now if you would have asked most people, what's the Halachus of Tattoo? Tattoo is Aser. Okay, right? Not so much write about. Well, Chaim wrote pages and pages on it, which have become... Um, the blueprint for many contemporary interesting questions that come, especially in medicine, where there are a lot of questions of medical tattooing, or sometimes people have certain surgeries where they reconstructive surgeries, there's a question of tattooing afterwards. All those questions, how they're going to be answered, many of them will root back to the countries of Chaim wrote many, many years ago. But here we're going to extract a piece we wrote about Purim in his countries on tattooing. So again, I copied it from a countries of his Talmud, but really it's coming from, it was just easier to copy it because he paraphrased it better than the original one. We're going to take up much more space. So he quotes the following Machlokes Achroinim. There's a Machlokes Achroinim, which is fascinating in itself, but we're not going to be able to focus on it too much. Is a mutter for a Yid to put a tattoo on a guy. Again, it's usher for a Yid to have a tattoo. It's usher for a Yid to give another Yid a tattoo. Would it be usher to give another, uh, to give a guy a tattoo? And the question really, you would think, well, what's the question? A guy is not mitzvah on a tattoo. It's not so posh Because according to some Yishayinim, a reason for tattooing that's usher is because it's linked to Avaydah Zorah. If it's linked to Avaydah Zorah, one of the Shavimitzvahs B'nai Nayach is 
Avaydazar, so maybe it's Avazrai Avaydazar. So that's Machlaikis Rishayim number one. And even if you go in the side that's not linked to Avaydazara, there's a Machlaikis by Hakafa Saroish, which is shaving the Payas area and stuff, which is also for Yid. Um, and there's a Rambah brings a day on, in Yerdei and Kufpei, Kufpei Aleph, that it'll be also for a Yid to do it to a guy, even though a guy could do it to himself. Maybe a Yid can't do it to a guy. Again, we can't get involved in all the halachic intricacies of that right now. I'm just bringing up that backdrop that that's a Machlaikis. So those Machlaikis Achreinim, would it be also for a Yid? To give a tattoo to a guy. So Noidib Yehuda says it's mutter. A yid could give a guy a tattoo. The Menchas Chinuch says it's tali. If a yid could cut off a guy's payas, then it would be mutter. If a yid can't cut off a guy's payas, then it would be usher as well. And there's a reason why that's linked. But again, we're not going to get stuck in that halachic detail, maybe a different time. Says Reb Chaim, but if you look in the Medrash Megillah, which is printed in some obscure collection of Madrash, not the regular Medrash Rabbah, it says there that Mordechai wrote on Haman's leg a star with a tattoo ink that he's his slave. Right? We'll get to this more a little later, that Haman had a lot of history. One of Haman's previous experiences was that he was uh, subservient to Mordechai in a way of being his slave. How did Mordechai want to ensure that Haman wouldn't go somewhere else? So he branded him, literally, by tattooing somewhere on his body, either his leg or somewhere else, the question is exactly where he did it, that Haman is his slave. Says Reb Chaim, you see clear from this medrash, now there's a question of how you pass it from a medrash, that's a different discussion, but let's just take it for now for the Purim aspect of it, that you see from this medrash that Haman had a tattoo and was put on by Mordechai, so that should be a raya that it's mutter. And then he goes back and forth, again it's a lot of halachic details, but the question is exactly what was tattooed. Was there a whole star tattooed on Haman's leg, or maybe just something along the lines of shayich Mordechai? which might be just a simon ba'alma, which might not be usr. So he's misupik if it's a good raya or not halachically, but it just opens up a, a light to understanding the halachas of tattooing is nagea to Purim as well. And the question again would be exactly what was tattooed on Haman's leg? Either was the whole shtar, which as he says, it's the pashas, halashon of the medish is the whole shtar, or uh, maybe just a word or a word or two, much shorter version of, of uh, that he just shayach to Mordechai. Now, this is also Nagayat Hilchas Gittin because the whole discussion of Gittin, if you tattoo uh, a get on your Evet and give your Evet to your wife, whether or not that gets kosher or not, how that works. And there's a whole Shaila and the Paiskim, how that, even if, even if that get might be good, how can the Edim sign it? The Edim will become Rishoyim if they tattoo it on Evet. Evet is like an Isha, Evet Kanaini has it done like an Isha. An Isha can't get a tattoo, so how can an Aid sign the get if he's tattooing it? He's become Pasala Edus. Okay, Reb Chaim talks about that in Sefer. We're not discussing that right now, but just to open up an idea that um, there is a Shiloh of a tattoo on, on Haman's leg. We'll get to Haman more a little later, Bez Hashem. Now, here's a Vart, and I'll tell you it's not from Reb Chaim, but I was installed from this Vart, and I think it's very much in the same line of thinking of Reb Chaim, and this is why many people say, equate Reb Chaim to the Vilna Goyen in our generation, obviously. He was the closest thing. Because you'll see, this is a vart from the Goyen, and if Reb Goyen would have said it, I would have thought Reb Chaim Kanevsky said it. Okay? So here's the vart. We know that Sadiqim have an unbelievable ability to take things which are sometimes seem very bad, uh, a klala or a hard situation, and be v'nahapachu, and make it into something which is good. They know how to take something, a bad situation, and make it for the best. So we know that in the original sin of Adam and Chava, Chava gets a klala. Harbe arbe yitzvaynech v'heyronech shall have a hard time with childbirth, child rearing. And that's the klala of Chava. And Chazal say that not, not just the child bearing, child rearing, but it's also the dam nidos. The fact that a woman is subject to the uh, monthly cycle of dam nidos, that's also part of the klala. 
Says the Goyim, we see from Esther how she took this klala and turned it into a bracha. And he says, the Gemara interestingly has a whole discussion and gives 12 different reasons why Esther invited Haman to the party. 12 different reasons the Gemara discusses. Ayn Sham. Says the Goyim, if I would have been in the times of the Gemara, I would have said the 13th reason. Listen to this genius. He says, the Gemara tells us in Psachim, in Arve Psachim, again, nothing to do with anything we're talking about, but the Gemara there is talking about the halacha, which we're familiar with, that a man should not walk between two women. Okay? And a man should walk between two avodah See, There's all different types of halachas, either for tzniyats or other reasons why it's not appropriate. But then the Gemara also says in the same context that if there are two men standing next to each other, having a conversation, and a woman who's a nida walks between them, im if she's in the beginning of her nida state, one of them will die. And if she's at the end of her nida state, some fight, some serious fight, machlaikas will come between them. That's what the Gemara says. Exactly how this plays out in modern times, I can't tell you, but that's what the Gemara says. Now, the Gemara in Tainus tells us, in a totally different discussion, if there's ever a Gezeira that's paskind by a boss of a dumb, by a, by a body, a government body, and one of those officials die, says the Gemara, Mevatli the Gezeira also. The Gezeira will become bottle. So says the Goin, the Gemara Darshins that before Esther went into Ahasuerus, the Pasuk says, hamalka, which literally means she was trembling. But the Gemara Darshins that she trembled, which means that she was, uh, it started her Nida cycle. She became a Nida at that time. So says the Goyin, L'chein, so what was Esther's plan? I'll invite Haman to the party. Then Haman and Ahasuerus will be next to each other. She will go between Haman and Achashverosh, or Mimonavshach. Now, in Betchilas Nidasahi, if she's at the beginning of the Nida, one of them will die. And then if one of them die, the Gemara tells us, automatically the Gezerah will be bottled. Because the Gemara says, whenever there's a Gezerah that's imposed by a, a, a human uh, a government body, and one of them die, the Gezerah falls away. Or, if she's Besayf Nidasa, she says, they'll become, Achashverosh and Haman will come to fight. If they come to fight, also, there's a good chance that the Gezerah will be bottled. This was, Haman's, this was Esther's plan, how she's going to either kill Achashverosh, kill Haman, or make to have some massive machlaikis, and that'll be a, a salvation for the Purim story. Now, we know this is not exactly how it played out, but this is a good backup plan. So you want to know what Esther's backup plan was, according to the guy, and this was her backup plan, and then he goes on and he ties it into what happened. What? But Haman did die. Right, that's true. Right, that's fine. But, right, Enochanami, very good. But they had to figure out, okay, the Gezerah became somehow about you right, Enochanami, you're right. But this is, again, just an idea of, of an insight of how if you know, if you have all Chazal in front of you on a silver platter, right, if you have everything placed in front of you, everything just, it's posh. Like, there's not, you don't have to, like, there's not some sophisticated vart. It is. But if you just know everything, it's not so sophisticated, right? Okay, here we go. Now, the next vart is from a sefer called Derech Sicha, which is another one of Talmidim of Reb Chaim. And uh, there's two volumes. This is from Chelek Beis. And a very fascinating discussion. Shout for the story. It says, Reb Chaim said over the following story. Reb Chatzkel Abramsky, the great, uh, who was a dying in London, then he subsequently came to Eretz Yisrael, in Bnei Brak. And he once asked his wife, he says, what do you think Mordechai was thinking when he was on top of the horse? Here it is. He was fasting. Things are going really bad. Next thing you know, Haman shows up, gets him dressed, gives him a haircut, does everything, bathes him, puts him on top of the horse. He's dressed like royalty. Reb Chatzkel Abramsky turns to his wife and says, what do you think Mordechai was thinking. 
So you know what? You know what? You know what he said. Reb Chatzka, of course, didn't let his wife answer. He said, "I'll tell you what he was thinking." Ani Agel, I'm going to tell you about who Chashav. He says, "Maldi kola kavod hamendume vatipshi zeh." Why do I know this ridiculous kavod? Vechimahu writes him, and he was haman wad for me. Halavai, this party should be over. This teka should be. Over, this, this situation should be over, and I'll go back to my Gemara. So basically, Reb Chatzka told him, "You know what Mordechai was thinking? Get me out of here. Get me back to the base medrash." Okay. Now Reb Chaim picks up on this and says as follows: Before. Mordechai gets on the sus, before he gets on the horse, the Gemara says that Haman came to Mordechai, right? Mordechai was sitting with his Tamidim, he was learning, and Mordechai told Tamidim to run because maybe he's going to come kill, and Mordechai has a face-off now with Haman. And Haman says, okay, Mordechai, get up on the, uh, on the horse, you got to go ride, you got you know, you to get up and uh, they're going to give you honor. So Mordechai tells him, Amalei, in the second paragraph there, it says, Lo yilchilna, I can't, to Kachisha, I'm very weak because I was fasting the past few days. And then, right, we know Haman bends down, and and Mordechai steps on, uh, gives him a good kick, and then he steps on, and then he steps on him and uses him as a footstool. So Haman turns to Mordechai and says, "What do you mean? The pasuk says, How can you kick me? The pasuk says, when your enemy falls, you shouldn't be happy. How can you be rejoicing? Now, did anybody ever think they learned this Gemara? How did Haman know that pasuk? <laughs> now, I would have thought Haman didn't really know the pasuk. He was just, you know, just trying to say that idea, and Chazal put that pasuk in. But no, no, the Chazal said that Haman knew the pasuk. So Amalei, so Mordechai tells him to stickle your back. Hanimir, that pasuk been followed vechal tismach is only be Israel. But by you it says Quotes him another pasuk that says I can trample you. So Frekt Chaim, how did the Gemara know this whole shakratai? How did the Gemara know this whole shakratai again? Similar to the questions we had before. Obviously, they had a bit Messira. But how can we see in the words of the Tanakh and in the words of Chazal that it fits in that they knew this? He says it's very Pashat. Because the Pasik says, what happened afterwards? Haman goes home and tells his wife, everything that happened to him. Now we know from Chazal throughout, from out Shas that the word koil is a riboy. What's koil being marabe? What's it coming to include? If he just was telling Zeresh this, the basic story, he doesn't have to say the word kol. The adjective, the extra word kol, everything, that extra word is, is, is extra to teach me that there was more than what happened than just that, that Mordechai was on a horse and Haman led him. Elamai says to Chaim, she, she, he told her there was a shock of attire. Now, okay, that's a basic background. But now he says, how did Haman know all these psukim? And furthermore, the Gemara says that Haman used to be a barber. He was a sapper in the city of Kfar Kartsum. He says... The fact that Haman was a barber, Chazal was pasha to Chazal, because you see, Haman gave Mordechai a haircut. Right? Haman could have called, called one of his sons, or called somebody, one of his friends or something. The fact that he had to do it shows that he had the Yechilis to be a barber. Okay, that's, he said that's not such a kunst that Chazal figured that out, because it says that Haman gave him a haircut. But how did Chazal know that he lived in Kfar Kartzum? And where is Kfar Kartzum? Right? So I never thought of this question, of course, because why would I think that's Chazal said, right? But Tezor Chaim, it's pasha. The Chashafti, he says, in the left column over there, he says, From the fact that Haman knew the Psukim, that shows you where was he hanging out as a kid? He's playing basketball with the Jewish boys, right? So he was, he was hanging out with the Jewish kids and he was growing up, right? It's like Havdil in Brooklyn, right? All the Italian kids, they knew uh, certain Yiddish phrases, right? Because they played with the, with the guys in Brooklyn. They played, they played in the streets, right? Street ball. So Haman, obviously, in his youth, was spending time amongst Jewish kids, right, in a Jewish environment, because he knew Psukim, okay? So now, 
How could it be Vegam Yoda, he says, Kol Min because he also, we know in, from other Midrashim, that he knew all different details of, of Jewish law, like about the, the wine and all those things, this famous Chazal. He knew all the different Zmanim, and he did his, his Goyrol, right? He knew all these things, which months are good, which months are How did he have all this information, right? So it must be, he says, he spent time with the Jewish people. Va'alkein, he says, Sheben Arusa, in his youth, God of Beni Hudim. Va'arei, Frechter B'chayim, what do you mean? How can he have been, where were the Jewish people in Haman's youth? In Eretz Yisrael. Va'arei, Asr Lador Akum Mehem Eretz Yisrael. You can't have a guy living in Eretz Yisrael at that time. He says, Va'alkein, Shayegar Toishev. Must be that Haman accepted upon himself, which is a whole detail how exactly that works, but we'll take it for now face value as a Ger Toishev. A Ger Toishev is a Gentile who accepts upon himself certain basic tenets of faith, and he's allowed to live within Eretz Yisrael. But where in Eretz Yisrael is allowed to live, he can't choose where he wants to live, says the because there's a price of Masechtas Geir. Now, a drop of backdrop. There's Shas, right? We have all the, there's Sisha Shid and Mishnah, and then there are seven Masechtas Kitanois, which are brises, which the Chidah in his day brought to light from different Kisveyad. And there's Masechtas Geirim, there's one called Masechtas Tzitzis, Masechtas Tzvillin, Masechtas Avadim, Kusim, there's a whole bunch of short uh, Masechtas, they're all brises. They don't have the same strength as the Mishnah. Rabbi Chaim Kedarkai learned them and wrote a pirish on all of them. So he was obviously he was very familiar with them. So a Masechtas Geirim, there's a Brisa which says, Ein Moishiv, and I say, where do you put a Ger Toishov? Besapar, Elab Empty, you can't put that, he can't live anywhere on the borders or around the edges of Eretz Yisrael, for whatever reason the, the, he explains there in his pirish on, on Masechtas Geirim. But he has to live in the middle of the country. So the Yadu Chazal, so Chazal know that Kfar Kartim is the middle of Eretz Yisrael. So it's very posh. How did Chazal, how did Haman know the Psukim? Because he grew up amongst the Yidin. If he grew up amongst the Yidin, where could he have lived? The only place he could have lived was Kfar Kartim, because that's smack in the middle, surrounded, and it, it fits all the qualifications. Again, you have to know geography to figure this all out. You have to know that fits a geography. So he lived in Eretz Yisrael. He lived in this Jewish village, and he was a barber there. So it all makes sense. It wasn't just Stam Chazal was saying he was a barber in, in Kfar Kartim. It fits in with the whole totality of, of Chazal. Okay. Now, here's a trivia question. How... Oh, oh, okay, I have to have that stim. I can't stim everything. Okay. <laughs> right. How old was Haman when he was hung? I don't know. Right? <laughs> he heard the answer. Yeah, yeah. Right, he must have been pretty old, right? How old was pretty old? Was he 75, 175, 270? How old was he? Says Reb Chaim in number 8, this is back from the time of the Quran, is Reb Chaim's own pencil. He says, Nira. Shahaman Haya ben Sadiye. Haman was 95. Kishanitla. How do I know that? Kiminyan Haman. It's the gematria of his name. Okay. I mean, that's a nice remez, but of course it's not going to end here. It fits in that his name was gematria 95, so you see he lived 95 years. Now, a lot of people's gematria names are shorter than that or much longer than that. They live, doesn't mean that's how long they'll live, right? So he explains as follows. How do I know it? Because again, it's going to fit in with the whole totality of knowing all, all the divrei chachamim. He says, because Mordechai, we know, Gemara tells us, was from the Yoshfei Lishkas HaGazes. He was from the group of the Tamid HaChacham who were part of Lishkas HaGazes, like the Gemara tells us. Now he says, the Gemara tells us in Sanhedrin, how do you get up to Lishkas HaGazes? Lahavdil, Lishkas HaGazes, like the Supreme Supreme Court, right? The highest of the high level. Now the only way to get to Lishkas HaGazes is first you have to have been a judge in your own city, you have to die in your local Bezdin. Then you get upgraded to the Bezdin of Chaf Gimel on the Harabayis. Then you get upgraded to the Bezdin of the Azara, different levels of, of court system, and then you get up to Lishla This is the highest level of a court system in the times of the Beis Amigdash. So, uh, so the Gemara said that Mordechai was on Lishla Now, 
Mordechai, now if you figure this out, when he was Goyla, when he went into Golis, had it been at least 15. Why? Because the earliest age to become a Dayan in your, in, at all is 13. That's the brings a Gemara. So the earliest age he could have been a Dayan in his own city was 13. Now obviously it takes at least a few months to a year to get upgraded to the next system, to the next system. So the minimum that Mordechai was, was 15, excuse me, at the age of when he was Gola, when he went into Golos. And he says, if you follow suit with that, if you, assume, if you go based on this Cheshman, he says, um, that from, from Tesvav Begolos, that was the Golos Yechonia, Shagala Oz, at the end of the first paragraph, on the right side, Mavur B'Megil Yed Aleph, from Begolos Yechonia, until the second year of Achashverish's rule was 70 years. That's what Achashverish thought, that it was all, you know, everything was going to be over. So he was 15, and now 70 years later, we fast forwarded 70 years, so Mordechai is 85 years old. Imkain Hay Mordechai was in the top of the left column was, was, was 85. Umaisid the Haman, the whole story with Haman was 10 years later. Okay? Imkain Hay Mordechai was, Mordechai was also 95. Skip the brackets for a minute in the last column. He says, For Haman was the same age as Mordechai. How do I know that? He says, For Haman Hay Gankin Baisagil, Sharei Amru Be'estarabi, the Medrash tells us, Shahaman Amalei the Mordechai, like we said the Gemara before, when Haman tells Mordechai to get onto the horse, he says, Kum Rochayv Hadein Susta, get onto this horse. Amalei, so Mordechai tells him, the Medrash says, Let's be Not just I have no strength, but I'm old. Mordechai tells Haman, I'm old. I can't get up onto the horse. Amalei Haman, am I also not an old man? Meaning, we're, we're comparable in age. You're not younger, you're not older than me. We're comparable in age. That's how Rabbi learns the Medrash. Amalei, so Mordechai tells him back, You caused me to be even weaker now because you caused me to have the fast, meaning because of all the um, you know, the decrees and everything, I had a fast. So it's true, we're both old, but I'm weaker now, and that's your fault, I'm weak because I had a fast. So Reb Chaim ends off, he fears ice, he says, if Mordechai would have been older, so what's Mordechai telling Haman? I'm an old man. And, and what's Haman telling, telling Mordechai? I'm, you're, I'm, you're, I'm, also, I'm also not an old man, meaning they were of comparable age. So if, if Mordechai was 95 at that time, so therefore it says Reb Chaim, it's Pashit, that Haman was 95 as well. All right, so we know that Muhammad had a tattoo. Uh, maybe that's a chiddush. It was a chiddush to me. We know Haman was 95. And now the question is, let's skip for a minute number 9. Let's go to number 10. And this is a very fascinating discussion. We had the mitzvah this morning of Parsha Zachar. We read and the mitzvah of eradicating the, 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 all the memory of Amalek. And we know the chinuch tells us that women are not mitzvah mechias Amalek because the way the chinuch explains it is that women are not b'nei mochamaninu. Women don't go out to war and therefore they're not And that brings up the whole discussion whether or not women are mechayiv and pasha zacher or not, not the discussion right now. But the question is, so what? They don't fight. They don't go into battle. But part of mechiyas hamolek, we see this from the mice of Shoal, is that you also eradicate the chafatzim of hamolek, the cattle and all the, the, the possessions that belong to hamolek. That, that has no shaykhah still mechama. So the achreinim ask, why aren't women still mechayiv? It's cool they don't go out to battle, but they can at least get, they should have a mitzvah of destroying the possessions of Amalek. So the answer, Shanachasin in some eight Amalek base, where do people keep their possessions? In their house, right? In their in their own uh, abode. Then Ainam Yaitis Machov, the women are not going out to war because they're home, so they can't get to the Khafatzim of Amalek. So we just again we discussed it. Now we just introduced the idea that women are not Mukhayev to go out to battle to fight Amalek. What about the fact that Amalek's uh, possessions also have to be eradicated so women can't get there because the only way to get there is to go out to war and to get into the Amaleki villages? Fine. So there was a great Rosh Hashiva who passed away a few years ago, Ram Ganachovsky, Rosh Hashiva in Shabin, and he had a lot of um, interesting ways of, of thinking and approaching sugyas. And he brought up the following Shiloh. 
It's true that nowadays we might not know exactly who Amaleki is, and maybe there's other issues of trying to kill an Amaleki, so we don't kill Amalekim nowadays. But why don't we fulfill the mitzvah another way? Every person should take a chayfetz, I'll take my tissue box, and say, I'm hereby being makna this, I'm giving this over to an Amaleki, and now it belongs, it's an Amaleki tissue box, and I'll burn that tissue box, I'm destroying Amaleki possessions, and I'm getting a mitzvah, Mechiyas Amalek. Isn't that a great way of doing it? So someone brought this shy. This is what Rav Gunachovsky brought up in a shir as a discussion. It wasn't Paskening. He was discussing it as, as a, as a lumdus, right? And this is a fascinating discussion, but as a way of possibly being Mekayim, it's just Mechiyas Amalek. So someone runs, runs to Rav Chaim Kanievsky and says, what about this idea? Is this a good idea for a way to eradicating Amalek? And Rav Chaim says, no. <laughs> Why? He says, because you can't be making it to a, a chayfet to somebody if you don't know anybody who those people are. Meaning, I can be, I can be, as a concept of zochon I can give somebody something if it's for a benefit, even if I, he's not here with me now, right? I pick up $100, I want to give it to you, I can have in mind, maybe I have to do other types of care, a lot of details here, but the basic idea is I can be making it or I can be zochon for you if I know you who you are and you exist. But if I don't know if who the Amaleki is, Rabbi Chaim said, then I can't be uh, mocking it to you. Furthermore, he said, there's another issue of something called Loisi Chanem, right? I can't give gifts to a, 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 a Akum, any guy, and other issues. But I just want to bring this out. This is a massive machlekes achreinim, how Zechia works. And Rav Chaim Kanevsky on the cuff just said you can't do it. Rav Chaim Kanevsky brought the Shaila. For those who are holding in the Shiva Shesugis, this could be a whole shear just on how Zechia works. Rav Chaim is learning klar that Zechia couldn't work unless you know who you're giving it to. Now, we're talking about Haman. I want to bring up, I bring this on the papers because I heard this only this week. I was listening to a shir um, from a, a Rish Chabur in Lakewood of Kazlut Shlita. He was speaking out something else for Reb Chaim that fits in uh, shtickle to this as well. The Ramah tells us in, in Hilchas Purim, in Simon Tafresh Sadi, Tafresh Sadi Sif, um, Sif Yud Zayin. The, the minute there is that there's some psukim we read out loud, right? We know the four psukim, Yeshihudi, Mordechai Yatsa, Yehudi Masayra, Mordechai etc. So that's the minute. Then the Ramah says, Oikasu, Shinagati Naikis Lotta to us Haman al Eitzim Vadim. The minute of children is to make images of Haman on Eitzim and Avonim, or to write the name of Haman and to bang them in order to eradicate his name based on the Pasuk, Machai Emchazeh, Timchazeh Hamalek. And Then the Ramah says, From here the minig develop Shemakim Haman, that we bang Haman. Okay, but the Ramah is not finished yet. Then the Ramah says one last line. Never stop doing a minig and never ridicule a minig because it was not established for north. There's a reason behind it. Chaim told one of the people he was learning with at one point, that this is the only time in Dal Chalke Shulchan Aruch that Ramah went out of his way to promote a minig with such strong lashonis. There are many times that Ramah will quote a minig and say Vechein or Ein and all those type of things. He's always quoting different minhagim. But to spend a whole line to promote a minig with such strong words, says Reb Chaim, this is the only place in Dal Chalke Shulchan Aruch that Ramah went out of his way to promote such a minig. So someone asked Reb Chaim subsequently. So there are certain shuls where the minig is not to bang Haman. What should we do? So he says, if you go to such a shul, that shul, those are the type of people that have Rachmanas and Haman. That's not a good thing. Right? Because the Sfar Maktashim all tell us that every time we bang Haman, it's somehow in, in the Alam uh, Yainim, it somehow is giving Haman another klep, another Malkus, wherever he is right now. And the more we bang him, the more klep he's getting. So anybody who doesn't want to clap on Haman, Rabbi Chaim said, is because he has Rachmanas on, uh, on Haman. <laughs>
All right. Obviously, there's a shear for everything. But yeah. Okay. Well, that's a different minute. Yeah, we did that this morning. We did it. Yeah, we did it. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. Let's begin a few more short dvarlach. Here we go. Number nine. Going backwards. So here's a fascinating question. So we know that Purim is one of the Yom Taivim that will not be bought to lost in lovely. Right? It'll last forever. Even in Yom Mashiach. But there's a problem. Because Rashi tells us in Re'eh that lost in there won't be any Aniyim. So how are we going to be Makayim Atanas Avyayim? If the whole mitzvah of Purim and the mitzvah Sayyayim are going to exist even lost in lovely, one of the mitzvahs of the day are Matanas Avyayim. So the guy, so Talmud Rabbi Chaim, this brought down the country, Siyach HaMegillah, asked Rabbi Chaim, how are we going to be Makayim Atanas Avyayim? There's no Aniyim. So Rabbi Chaim said, it's Pashit. What you're going to do is you're going to go in front of your friends. You'll be mafker or you're in the chasim. You'll become an ani. They'll give you matan instead of yoyinim. And then you'll get everything back, hopefully. Right? You hope, right? That's what he's going to do in front of your friends. And then he says in parentheses, even though L'chayr, the whole mitzvah is to give to anim, there's no ani, maybe you're not mechayv in the mitzvah, but he says there are many saydas why every, why every mitzvah chazal instituted for us to do. So if we want to do whatever we can to fulfill it, and therefore he said L'chayr, that's what his um, suggestion, how we fulfill loss of lovely. Furthermore, number 11 now, he brings us also from the country's Nivei Siach. He says, it brings a Medrash, which is also similar in a Gemara. The Gemara, the Medrash says, Rabbi Kiva was once giving shear, and he noticed that people were dozing off, and he wanted to wake them up. Amalei says, so he asked his Talmidim as they were dozing, what schus did Esther have that she was able to rule over 127 Medinos? So Rabbi Kiva tells his Talmidim, because she descended from Sari Imenu, Sari Imenu lived 127 years, and therefore, Esther Malk had 127 Medinas. Okay, that's a nice connection, 127, 127. But like we say, Mayan Shemitah, Yitzhar Sinai, what is that coming to teach us? The fact that Sarah lived 120 years, why does that correlate to the 127 countries that Esther is able to rule over? So Chaim said, there's a tremendous insight here. He says, Yesh Sheheir Lehem, he was arousing his Talmidim al Hashivas Hazman to take our time seriously. Sheneget Kol Shona, because you see, for every year of Sarah Imenu's life, Nasla Medina, Esther was your word with another country. Vahainu, Vada Mishim Sha'aska Mitzvah Maestayim must be because Sarah used her time wisely and used, occupied her time with Mitzvah Maestayim Taif and Kol Shana. Dilav Hachi, Ein Shaykh Lisham Negda. You cannot repay, not, we wouldn't repay for those years unless they were used appropriately. Vim Kain, Ein Kedai Labed Azman Bishina, or Bekiva's telling Islamidim, how can you sleep? Look what everything we do, how the future generations, besides ourselves, but our future generations will benefit from what we do as well. Sari Mainu lived her years fully, 127 years. Her great-great descendants, Esther Amalko, was able to get 127 countries. How could you be sleeping during a year? You don't realize that what you're doing now, the, the compound effect will be so great that it can affect generations for thousands of years later. That was the message Arab Chaim was telling his Talmudim, but he's learning into Rabbi Kiva as well. One last vart from Chaim's own pen, which is, um, ties into the slichas. We say in the slichas on um, Tainas Esther, a fascinating vart, which I've said this numerous times, and of course I never picked up on it. Who hung Haman? Haman was hung, hanged, right? Who hung him? Right? So the slichas says very clearly, Yehudi haikia yuladav lamata vaviyam lamayla. The Yehudi, who was the Yehudi? Mordechai. Mordechai was the one who had the job of being the executioner to hang Haman and his ten sons. As I state in the Siddur. So Reb Chaim said, why did Mordechai himself have to do it? Why couldn't somebody else do it? Says Reb Chaim, it's Pashit. Because he wanted to be kind of mitzvah. Like I said before, 
Why would he let somebody else do it? So the davening, the slichus is saying, who got the mitzvah? Mordechai. Then Abchayim says further. Now don't just think he got the mitzvah, he made brachas, of course, because you have to make a bracha every time you do a mitzvah. He says, Which brachas did he make? The bracha of Bechiyas HaMolek. Maybe he says, even he made a shechi yanu. And then he says, we know the Medrash tells us that Esther, that uh, Medrash Esther Rabba tells us that Haman had an Avoidah on his chest. So Mordechai got a chance to destroy that Avoidah Zara as well. So he made a bracha on, on destroying Avoidah Zara as well. So Chaim suggested there were at least three brachas that Mordechai could have made when he hung uh, when Mordechai hung Haman, and that's how Haman died. What would be the Mishra of the Al-Mechiyas I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Right. But in the Slichas. But we, die, we always dash in the Slichas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for the Slichas or everyone else. For the Kans Klai Yisrael, yeah? Okay, the second to last vart. The last vart I'm going to save is the Purim Tayyar vart. The second to last vart is number 13. I think it's a beautiful vart. I think it really sums up Rab Chaim. Um, there's no excuse for any one of us not to glean something from Rab Chaim's life. Like I said before, he wrote Svarm in every single Mektayah Tayyar. So there's nothing that we can learn today that Rab Chaim didn't write on, Nigla, Benister, etc. And even Art School did us the favor of translating so many of his works. There's a new biography that came out. There's so much to glean from. But I think this vart just speaks to Reb Chaim's love of Kla Yisrael. In number 13 it says that every year by the Sudan of Purim, of course Reb Chaim would have a lot of people coming in and out of the house all day and people were singing Shoshana Yaakov. And Reb Chaim would constantly be pointing out to people when they were singing the end, the Nusuch is, the correct Nusuch, and unfortunately some of the Sudan doesn't have this part, we say, Arurim Kol Rishayim, and then it says, Baruchim Kol HaTzadikim, right? So all the wicked should be cursed and all the righteous should be blessed. Reb Chaim would correct everybody who sang the song, you got it wrong. It's Arurim Kol Rishayim, Baruchim Kol HaYehudim. We not only, we don't only want the Tzadikim to be Baruch, even the Yehudim want to be Baruch. And he says that in brackets, a stipler did this as well. And to emphasize that each and every year, especially each and every year needs a bracha. And when we sing the song, we should have in mind, of course, that Tzadikim need brachas. But it's not just Baruchim Kol HaTzadikim, it's Baruchim Kol Yehudim. I think it's really what Reb Chaim embodied, the idea of being there for Klai Yisrael, he invested so much energy in just being there and listening to people's tzaris because he believed in Klai Yisrael, he loved Klai Yisrael, and that's what he wanted to impart the message of everybody should be davening for everybody else, we should all be have bracha. Okay, the last word I want to share is a little bit what we call Purim Torah. A little more on the lighter side. But of course, if you're Chaim Kanievsky, even the lighter side, you have to weave through Chazal. It's not just like a joke, right? So the question is as follows. Chazal tell us in numerous places that Haman didn't only have 10 sons. Haman had numerous sons. Many of them are illegitimate children, but he had more, more than 10. So why is it that we find in the Megillah that only 10 sons of Haman were hung? So Rabbi Chaim explained as follows. He says, the, the Medrash tells us that when Haman went to get the eights, went to get the wood to hang Mordechai, so he showed his children how, the, how Mordechai is going to be hung. But the Lashon Medrash is, he measured himself against the wood, so to speak. So Reb Chaim says, you see from this medrash, that Haman was 50 amas tall. Then he says, who was Haman's wife? Zeresh. We said in this week's parasha, today we read, Zeresh Arkoi Zeresh Rachboi. Right? Whatever exactly the context was. But the point is that he says, Zeresh sounds like Zeresh. So Zeresh, Zeresh was very short. So here you have this giant of a husband, Haman, 50 Amas. You have his super midget wife, Zeres. The Gemara tells us in Bechiris 
that a very tall person shouldn't marry a very tall woman because their children would be giants. A very short person shouldn't marry a very short woman because their children would be midgets. The Gemara says that they should marry a bainani, someone in between. So, says, in order for them to have bainani children, I'm sorry, that a tall person should marry a shorter woman. Says Reb Chaim, so that means Haman, who was very tall, married a very short wife. And the Gemara tells us in Rosh Hashanah that bainanim are tluyim v'oimdim atasara. That means bainanim are hanging up only until 10. So that's why only 10 of Haman's sons were hung. That's the Purim Torah. Gracias.